0: Yeah, so today we're continuing uh, with the God who redeems, and we're going to unpack three main ideas this morning: God creates, God redeems, and God restores. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who interacts with us, your creation. You don't just uh, start things off and kind of fade into the background. You are, you are near. You are glorious, you are are holy and just, you are righteous, but you have also shown your love in Christ Jesus to us. You deal with us personally, you're near to us, and we thank you for that. We thank you for sending Christ. We thank you for redeeming us, Lord. This morning, I do ask that you would just open our hearts to hear from you, to receive your word, to see your word, to believe your word, and to trust you more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So God creates. To see that God redeems, I think first we must see that God creates. God doesn't just enter the scene, so to speak, you know, mid-drama, and find a problem and sort of fix it. He was there at the beginning. He was before the beginning. He created all that there is. Creation and redemption are really part of the same story. The Bible is not simply a collection of random stories pieced together to inform and guide us in, into living moral lives. The Bible is the story of redemption. We call that story redemptive history. The story of redemption is unfolded throughout Scripture. We see broken, sinful people pointing us to Christ. We are not called to simply be like David or to be like Abraham. We're not called to try to just learn some good lessons from them. I mean, I think many of us in this room probably remember the the felt board Sunday school lessons. Um, You know, you got David up there and the big takeaways. You know, be like David. He sang for the Lord and killed lions and bears. I'm probably not going to kill any lions or bears, just so you know. We're not called to just learn some good lessons. But what we are supposed to see is God interacting with his creation, continually revealing more of himself throughout his word, advancing his plans of redemption. So the Bible is not just moralistic ideas for people. It's the story of a Savior promised, revealed, and explained in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But before we look further at redemption, uh, let's let's look at what made it necessary. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation account, and Mike has already spoken on the God who speaks, uh, but it's in this first two verses of chapter 1, the first verses of our Bible, that we see God speaking and creating everything that there is. And the rest of chapter 1 is the, the story of creation. But these first two verses say, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I'm not going to read all of the creation account, but to sum it up, On the first day, God created light. On the second day, atmosphere and firmament. On on day three, dry ground and plants. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and sea creatures. Day six, land animals and humans. And on day seven, God rested. Jumping down a bit to verse 26, we read about the creation of man. Reading verses 26 through 31. Then God said... And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So here, God creates man, Adam. And I want to point out just a few things. Adam is made in the image of God, in his likeness. He's given dominion over the earth, over all living things. God saw his creation and saw that it was very good. Sometime later, we don't know exactly how long. uh, God gives Adam a helper. He forms Eve from Adam's rib. But what we're seeing here is that God is a creating God. He is creative. He created all that there is. The universe, galaxies, stars, planets, our earth, vegetation, animal life, and human life. All that there is, including spiders, he made them. And his creation was good. It was perfect. Yet, just a couple of chapters over in Genesis 3, we have the account of the fall. Sin enters the world. And we won't read the whole chapter again, but what happens in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve are tempted to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God had forbidden them to eat from this tree. And the serpent says, did God really say that? And he's been saying that ever since. Eve eats of the fruit, and then Adam eats of the fruit, and immediately they see their nakedness. They're ashamed. They cover themselves with leaves, and they hide from God. Guilt and shame, and sin, and death have all entered the world. Genesis three seventeen through 19 uh, is... What God says to Adam after uh, declaring a curse over the serpent and to the woman, verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread." till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Shall return. So man has sinned, and death is introduced. And maybe when you hear this story, when you hear about Adam and the fall, you're asking, what does that have to do with me? I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Well, the Word of God shows us, because of Adam's sin, that we have all sinned because we are all of the seed of Adam. Paul shows us in the book of Romans that all have sinned, not just Adam. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 5, he shows us that it was through Adam that all sinned. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So this is the harsh reality. This is what necessitates redemption. We are sinners, lost, broken, and dead in our trespasses, bound under the, the curse of sin, unless God intervenes. And praise God, he did, because God redeems. My main text for this morning is Galatians three ten through 14, and that's what we're going to look at for this second uh, point here, that God redeems. Let's read, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who ha- is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So, we might be kind of familiar with the book of Galatians. Um, I don't know. uh, Maybe you were here when Derek preached through the book of Galatians a few years back. Um, If you've ever listened to the podcast that Derek and I do, we are sort of in the middle of doing a little look at Galatians. We've got one chapter left to go. Uh, But... Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, to a church that has drifted back to the law. These are believers, these are Christians who have been born again, uh, but they are now reverting back to the law. They've been infiltrated by a group of people called the Judaizers. A group of false teachers who taught that in order to be saved, one must believe in Jesus and follow the law. Especially circumcision. Paul spends a great deal of his ministry plagued by these Judaizers. They kind of follow him around from city to city. And he writes this letter to remind the church of Galatia of the gospel. And Paul, in the passage that we're looking at, has shown that those who rely on the law are under a curse. We are cursed, the sentence of death, because we are under the demands of the holy and righteous God, and we have fallen far, far short. The law reveals this. The law was given to show just how unable we are to save ourselves. The law itself is perfect. But those who try to justify themselves before God by following the law bring not his blessing, but his curse upon themselves. The law was given by God, knowing we would never be able to keep it. He knew we would never be able to attain to that level of obedience. We could not keep the law. God's chosen people, Israel, could not keep the law. Paul says, quoting Deuteronomy 27, um, in verse 10 there, that anyone who does not abide by all things written in the law and do them is cursed. Verse 11, he quotes from Habakkuk, stating that the, the righteous shall live by faith. And in verse 12, he quotes from Leviticus to show that those who live under the law must do those works without fail. It's all or nothing. We cannot keep it. The law shows us just how sinful we are. It's the mark given to say, you have sinned and this is what's required to be in God's presence and its perfection. Kind of seems hopeless, doesn't it? When you consider that that's that's the mark, that's the requirement. That's one of the purposes of the law, to, to crush us. And to show us that we need Jesus. The book of James shows us that if we have failed to keep just one of the commandments, we have failed them all. Now, I haven't killed anyone. But I sure have failed to love the Lord with all my heart at all times perfectly. And it's crushing because... It's something that I would never be able to do. But Jesus was able. What does verse 13 of Galatians 3 say? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So to redeem, the meaning of this word redeem is to buy out. This word was typically used... With the idea of buying someone out of slavery. We were slaves of sin. Living in terrible bondage. We've also been enslaved by the curse of the law. And I I tried to think of some good examples of redemption. Uh, I'm not always the best at illustrations. I think you guys are probably uh, aware of that by now. I'm not not always the best at coming up with illustrations. Derek, I think, is like the master of illustrations. Always had something. And, you know, I'm trying to to get better at that, but it seems that most of my illustrations either come from Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. (laughs) But I won't do that today. I won't won't share about how Darth Vader was immediately the the image that popped up in my head about redemption. But I tried to think back about, you know, history and, and some of the stories that I'm familiar with and... I couldn't come up with anything, and even with movies, even with Darth Vader and Star Wars and some of the characters in Lord of the Rings, it just seemed like those stories of redemption, uh, most of the stories from history or in movies that I could think of anyways, are about an individual redeeming themselves, making a change in themselves for the better. And that doesn't really tell the story of biblical redemption. There is a book of the Bible, however, that does have a very powerful story of redemption. Go figure, it's in the Word of God that we would find biblical redemption. In the book of Hosea, in the Old Testament, we have this really bizarre interaction between God and a prophet by the name of Hosea. God gives him this very unusual command in the second verse of Hosea chapter 1. He commands him to marry a prostitute. To display God's faithful love to unfaithful Israel. And in chapter 1 it says, Israel has committed great whoredom. As the book of Hosea continues, Gomer, his wife, leaves Hosea and returns to prostitution and unfaithfulness. And then God tells Hosea to go and redeem her, this unfaithful woman purchase her back. He does. He goes and buys her back and shows his love for her. These words in Hosea chapter 2, 19 through 20, display the faithful love of God towards his people as we would see it in Christ. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Christ has purchased our freedom. Not just freedom from sin, but also freedom from the curse of the law. God had given the law to show us our sin, but we failed to keep it. We were in bondage to the law. We were the unfaithful bride. And God came through his son, Jesus, and purchased us to himself. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus came and did what we couldn't. He obeyed the law perfectly, not just on the outside, but from the heart. He obeyed when I could not. He fulfilled the law And on the cross, he took on the full curse of the law so you and I could be redeemed. And I love how Paul summarizes this in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christian, you are dead in trespasses, but through Christ you've been redeemed. He has taken the record of debt that stood against you, and he nailed it to the cross. That curse of the law, what this typified, this idea of taking it and nailing it to the cross, is he took that record of all the things that you were under, all the curses that you were under, he folded it up and he nailed it to the cross. Your debt is paid. The curse is lifted. You are redeemed. Jesus defeated sin. He fulfilled the law so that we could be redeemed from the curse of sin and the curse of the law. Galatians 3.14 finishes this passage that we've been looking at with an amazing thought. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this is not just for Israel. Redemption is for all who would trust in Christ, including you and I. Not only are we redeemed, but because of this redemption, there are some really amazing benefits, as if redemption alone wouldn't be enough. Galatians 4, 4-5 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We, the redeemed, have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God uh, sent his son uh, so that we might be adopted as children of God. We have eternal life. We have the forgiveness of sins, freedom from the curse of the law, deliverance from sin, and all its bondages. And we have peace with God to name just some of the blessings of redemption. Just scratching the the surface there. God redeems. And it doesn't end there. There is a future hope in all of this as we consider that God creates, God redeems, and he also restores. When we consider the story of redemption... The end of this story or the culmination of it isn't just the church living in these present realities of our relationship with Christ. Um, just living life Sunday to Sunday as if you know, that was the, the period at the end of the sentence. This is just the current chapter. There's, there's a final chapter coming. There's a culmination of this ahead of us. With Christ's death and resurrection, he began the work of restoration and he's given us a future hope. At the culmination of all things, when Christ returns, the redeemed will be gathered together and will have a song forever on our lips. In the book of Revelation, uh, John shares this song with us, sung by the four beasts and the elders and then later joined by the myriad of angels in heaven. Revelation 5 Nine through ten, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then in chapter seven, we see a multitude that no one can number. We see people from every tribe and language and, and nation gathered around the throne. And these people will include you and I and all the redeemed. Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, and he's begun to restore its creation to its original place. Our future hope is that one day when Jesus comes back, he will complete the story with the restoration of all things. We see what was lost in the garden, and God is restoring that. He's not just redeeming people, but all of creation as he makes all things new. In Revelation 21, 1 through 5, we see a glimpse of the final purpose of the story of redemption. The full arc as we've looked from God creating to the fall of man. All this time in between where the law was given and, and Israel struggled and struggled to keep that law because they couldn't. And then Jesus came. And since that time, we've been living in this age Uh, where we have the gospel, we have the new covenant, we've had this revealed to us, we've seen Jesus. He's been explained to us. But the arc of this story ends. And really, it doesn't end. It's just kind of just beginning with Revelation 21 here. When it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God redeems people, and God restores his creation. That's our future hope. That's what we're looking forward to. How do we apply this to our lives? I've got two Application points this morning. Number one, proclaim. We proclaim the redemption story of our great loving Redeemer to all people. Inviting them in to this story. Inviting them in to the redemption of people. Inviting them in to see this new creation and this new earth that God is going to that God is going to work. Proclaim the forgiveness of sins to those who have not yet believed. The mission of Grace Life is pretty simple. It's to preach the gospel and make disciples. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to do just that. Proclaim this amazing redemption story generously to all. Invite them to believe in Christ and, and to one day pe- be a part of this multitude from all tribes, people, and languages. And there are people all over Avon and Livingston County who have yet to know Christ as their Savior. Neighbors co-workers, friends, uh, people that we run into at the grocery store So let's spread the good news to all let's spread the the hope that we have within us to them you know invite them uh, over to your home for dinner and share the reason for the hope that you have within you invite them here We've got lots of chairs lots of chairs at the table so to speak here. The second way we can apply this is to hope. It can be so easy to look at the world in despair. As I've often said, all you have to do is turn on the news. Despair. But the story of redemption is a sure thing. We have hope. We can hope because the New Testament reveals and explains that the center of redemption is Jesus Christ, who is our great hope. And we can be assured of that hope we can be assured of the hope that awaits us, that God will re- restore all of creation. The book of Revelation often causes fear and anxiety in people. I was actually talking with Ken a little bit about that before service. Um, I, my upbringing um, and, and studying through the book of Revelation, I've often maybe feared it a little bit. But the book of Revelation is actually filled with lots and lots of hope. It wasn't written to cause fear or anxiety at what is coming. It was given to show us that ultimately and finally, Jesus wins. Jesus has overcome. There is nothing, no enemy, no curse, nothing going on outside, uh, nothing on the news, not even death. Death. That can win. Jesus wins. The enemy doesn't win. Jesus wins. So, hope. Proclaim the gospel and hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for overcoming, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hope that you've given us because of Christ. We thank you that Jesus was victorious, that he came and redeemed us from the curse of sin and the curse of the law. We thank you that you've chosen us as your people, your children, and that you've adopted us into your family. Lord, this morning we ask you that you, ask you, that you would give us boldness that would give us your Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know you yet. Father, I ask that you would send us out to share the reason of the hope that we have within us. Whether it be our neighbors or our friends or co-workers or people that we run into at the grocery store, that, uh, Lord, you would just give us the boldness to share the reason for the hope. Lord, I just ask that you would move in our hearts, that you'd fill us with your spirit, that you'd fill us with your love, and send us out into Avon and the surrounding areas that haven't found this hope yet. We give you all the honor and the glory and the praise this morning. We thank you that you indeed are making all things new. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.